Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Now I have a story that I'd like to tell about movies you all know that had me scared as hell. The films come at me at night as I turn on my set. Films like Dracula and Frank each make me sweat. I've been shown these films almost every single day, and even if I don't like, I talk about them anyway. Now we have a team with the past you can't let go. I can't believe there's a nightmare on our show. With much apologies to DJ Jazzy Jeff, The Fresh Prince, and my co-hosts Derek and Casey, plus all you listeners out there, I welcome you to episode number 36 of the Down Place podcast for August 2014. My name is Scott, and I can't sing, let alone rap. Now, as mentioned, we do have a nightmare on our show this month. The 1964 Hammer film, Nightmare. In this film, Hammer was capitalizing on the psychological horror film craze, which began in 1960 with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Nightmare was under the direction of Hammer Studios regular Freddie Francis, the man who just a year before brought us the Oliver Reed film, Paranoiac a film that we talked about here on Down Place back in episode number 007. Sadly, that's the only James Bond reference I can make in this episode. Now, Nightmare stars Jeannie Linden as the troubled teen Janet, Maura Redman as a nurse with a hidden agenda, and Brenda Bruce as one of Janet's teachers. Now, after this quick message, I'll be joined by Casey and Derek to talk about this beautifully shot psychological black-and-white film from Hammer Studios, right here on 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films discussion. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes, because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully, Fozzie Bear, Buzz Lightyear, Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice, Merida, Pepe, Bruce, Ralph the Dog, Wally, Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Hindu, Podcast, Syndrome, even after five years we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. You found me out there, didn't you? That part of it wasn't a dream. Where does the dream finish and reality begin? Are you dreaming, Janet? Are you sleeping? Or is this a waking nightmare? What do you mean by locking yourself in all day? I'll tell you. Here, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about anybody sneaking up behind me with this. What is it? An evil curse? An insane hoax? A nightmare? Or cold-blooded murder? 
shocking, 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 shocking. This is The Count, and I welcome you to 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films discussion. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust you found everything you needed. If you need anything, my servants Casey, Derek, or Scott can assist. Thank you. Well, in the 1960s, Hammer Films released a number of, well, suspense films, thriller films, non-gothic, but yet still spooky-type movies. We've covered a couple of them here on the show. Paranoiac comes to mind. This time around, we're going to be talking about 1964's Nightmare, written by Jimmy Sangster, directed by Freddie Francis. I'm Derek M. Cook, and we've got Scott Morris and Casey Criswell here as well. How's it going, fellas? Hello. Hello. <laughs> we did that last month. Yeah, it's, it's fun, though. Hello? <laughs> so did all of these films use the same script? Wow. <laughs> You're right there, huh? <laughs> wow. Well, it is Jimmy Sangster, and, I mean, we like Jimmy Sangster. We like him here on the show. He's one of the more well-known, and deservedly so, Hammer creators, you know, screenwriters. He's responsible for a lot of what hammer did but yeah i feel like nightmare in particular was kind of a paint by numbers affair it, re- it, it reminded me a lot of scream of fear yeah a lot of scream of fear with a little bit of paranoia thrown in no oliver uh, reed though that's true oliver reed would have made this well oliver reed makes every movie better right exactly he makes everything better not just movies Everything, huh? Yes. Like I was down at the subway the other day ordering a sandwich, and I thought, you know, if Oliver Reed was here. It would have been a better sandwich. It would have been a better sandwich. Yeah, because you would have had a martini to go with it. <laughs> Do you think Oliver Reed drank martinis? I don't know. He, nah, he seems more of like a whiskey guy. Yeah, he does. You would, you would have had a drink with him, and then you probably would have fought with him in Subway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that, that would not have gone better for me, actually. Now that I think about it, let's keep him in the movies. <laughs> where you can't pick a fight with, with any of us. I think all of us would lose on that one. Anyway, Nightmare, <laughs> 1964. This was a first time viewing for all of us, wasn't it? It was. It was for me as well. And before yeah. we get much farther, I was the one that picked this. I'm sure that will come up. <laughs> well, it's nice of you to take the bullet. It's- or the knife to the chest. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just as long as it was in one of the dream sequences and not one of the. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There are some good things about the movie. I mean, I think our listeners probably can kind of guess now. Longtime listeners know that when we start a show like this, we probably didn't enjoy the movie too much. But I think there are some moments in this film that do stand out, some interesting things going on here. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, as we break down the plot and everything else. Uh, let's see. We talked about Jimmy Sangster being the writer, the director, Freddie Francis. Again, another one of those directors that's associated with Hammer, especially from this era. A lot of times Freddie Francis, I think it's overshadowed by Terrence Fisher. But I think when it comes to some of the more contemporary type stories, Francis really nailed it. And we like him from other things. He was a great cinematographer, a great director of photography, and would go on and do some other great non-hammer work. Every time I'm editing the show and we mention Freddie Francis, I typically drop in some music from the movie Glory behind it because he directed that. Or I'm sorry, he was the DP on that. Excuse me. But other than that, oh, actually, there is one other big name in this that we should probably mention. Bernard Robinson's doing production design. And I was excited to see that because typically we associate Robinson with the gothics. Well, the film was uh, done in our namesake. It was filmed at both Bray Studios and Down Place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was shot at Bray Studios. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Down Place and our <laughs> review of Nightmare. <laughs> I'm glad Robinson was doing the work on this, but it did 
feel kind of empty for me. I, I felt like we never really got a good grasp as to how the house was laid out. With Paranoiac, we knew the geography of the house. With this one, we really didn't. It's just, oh, here's another room. Oh, and here's a hallway. And here's another room. You never really knew how everything connected. I don't know if that's Robinson's responsibility to do that or the directors or what but anyway uh, as far as the cast goes it's pretty much people who have not done a lot of hammer work or in the much past. of anything else well, <laughs> any James Bond connections in the cast or Scott if we want to go there I've got to go all the way to the wardrobe department before I find someone so no no one in the cast <laughs> wow well at least there's something yeah the wardrobe mistress worked on the spy, uh, spy who loved me so and 102 Dalmatians. I can do my Disney connection there, too. She dro- oh, wait a minute. The wardrobe mistress worked on 101 Dalmatians? 102. The live action. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I forgot about that one. I was going to say, was she dressing the dogs? or <laughs> Painting well, their spots. <laughs> there you go. Well, we do have a Doctor Who connection. Our lead, Well, one of our lead actresses in this, Jenny Linden. She would go on to play, or excuse me, she would go on to appear in Doctor Who and the Daleks, the one of the Peter Cushing films hey, uh, from Peter Amicus. Has mentioned. Yes. How long have we gone? <laughs> I don't know. My recorder says 17 minutes, but I'm sure some of that will be cut. <laughs> some of that was Casey's amazing uh, discovery of some ice cream earlier. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we got Jenny Linden as one of the leads. She played Janet. We've got David Knight as Henry Baxter, her lawyer and or guardian, the executor of the estate. Yep. And then we had Maura Redmond as Grace Maddox, who is a nurse and not all that she claims to be in the film. I think those are pretty much the three leads, right? I suppose you've got the teacher. That brings up a point that I wanted to make about this film. It's almost like two movies. It really is. Yeah. And and the teacher is basically in the first half of the film, the first movie. And that's uh, Brenda Brenda Bruce as Mary Lewis. She's at the very beginning and then she pops up. Or she's through the first half and then she pops up at the very end as well. You've got a couple of servants in the house, that sort of thing. But it's a pretty small cast. This really could have been a play. One thing that uh, my wife and I noticed while we were watching it, especially the first half, there was more female characters that actually were participating in the plot of the film than most Hammer films that we've watched. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a good point. That's a real good point. Because, you know, a lot of the films that we've watched, the women in the Hammer films are there for eye candy mostly. Yeah, but this, interesting. <laughs> but this one, they actually were major characters in the film. No, it's a good point about the women um, being integral to the plot, especially on both sides of the coin, which I thought was interesting. Sometimes you've got, you know, like the bad girl female role and then the, the men opposite her. But the two halves of the movies that you were describing, the leads in those two halves are both female leads, whether it's Grace or Janet. You're right. I felt like Henry Baxter was pretty shallow. He wasn't really super important to the story. He was yeah. just there to help push the plot around. Yeah, even though he is shallow in the first half, he's almost, what, the mastermind? Sort of, yeah. But for a, a for a shallow character, that was kind of odd. Yeah. They weren't really clear with his character at all throughout the movie. We can get into it more later, but there's at least two or three different relationships in there that I was confused on how they were trying to portray that. I think there's a lot of confusion here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was the performer's fault. I think the acting was decent. Yeah. I think Jenny Linden, for being somebody who came in last minute to take on the role, it was originally – well, originally Hammer was touting her as somebody that was the first person they picked for the movie. She came on board, no problem. First pearl that auditioned for the film, which isn't true. Actually, they cast Julie Christie in that role, and she was going to be the lead. She's going to be Janet in the film. And this was before Julie Christie would go on to have her success in British cinema. However, at the last minute, her agent and her started begging Hammer, please, we don't want to do the movie us out of our contract because she had something else fall on there in her lap and they thought it was going to be a bigger more marquee type picture for her and at first hammer didn't relent they're like no you signed a contract well she begged and begged and begged and hammer was finally like you know what we don't want a grumpy leading lady let her go we'll get somebody else and they saw jenny linden in a stage play and that's how they got her in the role. I thought she did a decent job. Now, she has a background in theater up until this point. She went to school for education and teaching, but really loved drama. I'll have to disagree with you. I thought she looked good in the part, and she she had a very convincing, scared, confused look. But I 
when she was actually acting, I thought she was not very good. I see. I don't know if that was, I struggled with that when she first started quote unquote acting, not very good. I felt that was less her fault and more uh, fault. If there's going to be fault here of the script or the story, because I felt like her character was very shallow and empty. It's kind of just yeah. this bubbly kind of, well, not even bubbly, just this flat kind of, Oh, I go to school and I'm rich and I have all this money. And you know, just, <laughs> Well, I had a hard I time. I need more coffee, apparently. <laughs> I had a hard time buying her as a teenager. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I and, and I don't. And it wasn't the way she looked. I just her personality. She seemed more of somebody who was older, trying to play a teenager, and that's kind of graded on me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I don't know. Again, I don't blame that on her. I blame that on some casting choices. As a performer, I didn't have a problem with it. But yeah, I see exactly where you're coming from there. That makes a lot of sense. She's only in it half the movie, so. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Scott, before we started recording, you had mentioned a title that this movie is being sold under over in the UK. What was it again? It was, There's the Knife, Dear. Now Use It. Which was one of the working <coughs> titles of the screenplay. I'm glad they didn't go with that. <laughs> it, it would really kind of give this movie a different feel or flavor as the movie started. Although I think the m- titled Nightmare is pretty empty as well. Yeah. It's like a little more ambiguous. F- yeah. <laughs> this food is delicious. This shirt is comfortable. It just, it's just, they're empty words, you know? This woman yeah. is having nightmares. Yeah. Here, here's the knife deer. Now use it is just like, you know, one syllable or two away from go crazy in your sleep and stab people. <laughs> now I'd go see that film. <laughs> I, I would see that actually. I, I probably would. Should we get into the story itself? Unless there's anything else anybody else has about the movie. Let's dive in. I love the opening. <laughs> Here's the plot, dear. Now use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, honey. <laughs> well, the, I love uh, the opening. I love that that creepy opening. That's probably my favorite bit of cinematography in the whole film. Oh, I thought you were talking about me and Scott. Well, okay, that's adorable too. <laughs> no, but again, I, I've not had enough coffee. <laughs> well, it, the film does begin with Jenny, a nightmare. A nightmare. We're in the middle of a nightmare. It's uh, <laughs> Jeannie Linden's character Janet uh, in her nightgown, wandering some dimly lit hallways, uh, hearing a voice calling to her, and she's trying to find this person, and she's wandering through these these hallways, and we find out that she's in uh, the deserted corridors of a lunatic asylum, following this whispering female voice. And uh, she finds in one of the padded cells this woman standing um, in the corner, facing the corner, and she comes into the room, and the room slams, or the door slams behind her, and the woman turns around, and it's, we find out later it's her mother. She says something along the lines, now they know that you're crazy too, and just starts cackling. And uh, Janet just starts screaming, and uh, she screams herself awake, and also half the boarding school that she is currently staying at. Um, there's a room full of women there, and she's screaming like crazy, the... House mom, teacher comes running in to try to comfort her and tell everybody else to go back to sleep. The t- the other students, they don't want to have anything to do with her because they think she's kind of a little bit goofy, crazy. Um, they also don't like the fact that they keep her awake all the time with her constant nightmares. Miss Hatcher, or Mrs. Hatcher. If I can interrupt. Sure. I feel like this is one of those episodes that every time we say the word of the like the title of the film, we need to scream or put in some sort of sound effect or something. <laughs> yeah. She had a nightmare. Oh. Welcome to Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. As you were. Well, the uh, headmistress of the school is uh, really kind of nearing their ability to kind of cope with this troubled girl. They decide that they're going to send her home back to her guardian. They try to contact her guardian, but he's not available right away to to pick her up. So they decide that they are going to send her home uh, at his request. And they also, to help her make it home on the on the train, they send one of the teachers home with her, which seemed like kind of odd thing to do because now they're going to have to hire a new teacher to teach the classes that she was teaching. So they, the two of them, head home in the train, and now we find out that uh, Janet has a lot of money. 
because they're picked up at the train station in a Rolls Royce by a chauffeur. Janet immediately starts talking to the chauffeur to find out how things are back of the house, how Mrs. Gibbs is, and whether uh, Mr. Baxter, her guardian, is going to be there and, and how he's doing. Well, the chauffeur doesn't know when he'll be home, but Mrs. Gibbs is fine. They start driving home. They pass by this building with very large walls surrounding it. And Janet starts to go crazy and says, we need to stop here. Stop here. Stop the car. Slow down. The chauffeur, I think his name was Tom. John. John, thank you. John. Um, John has nothing. You know, it's like, no, we're not going to stop. We need to keep going. Uh, You're not really kind of told what that building is. But Janet is staring at the building, even turns around, looks out the back of the window of the car at the building as they pass by it. The teacher, she's trying to calm her down saying you know mary the teacher saying you know we're going to be home soon you need to calm down they get back to the house which we mentioned earlier um is uh, bray studios because some of the the building some of the rooms look like part of castle dracula to me <laughs> yeah. yeah it was shot at bray some of the opening bits were shot at oakley but most of it was shot at bray and if i can interrupt about john real quick he's played by a guy by the name of george a cooper who uh, actually does have a hammer film connection he was also in dracula has risen from the grave in a very small blink and you'll miss it landlord type role i believe so. he's also in hell's the city is he i think i saw that yes he is which is another film we we've done here on the show. Good eye, Scott. Wow, the newbie saw something that the Scott. We've been doing the show for how long now? Are you still a newbie? <laughs> yeah, I, will... I don't think you can claim that anymore. <laughs> well, compared to you two, I am. <laughs> <laughs> you're what, like thirty some show uh, movies in? I think you're you've lost your newbie title. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> you no longer have your hammer, Hyman. <laughs> Man, I was thinking it. I wasn't going to say it. I'm glad you went there, Derek. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, that's staying in the edit. (laughs) I am totally lost now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. They get to the house. It looks like Bray Studios because it is is Bray Bray Studios. Studios. Yes. And uh, Janet comes bounding into the house and meets up with uh, Mrs. Gibbs who is Irene Richman, who's also uh, been in a couple of other Hammer films. I think she was in Hysteria as one of them that she was in. Yeah, Hysteria was actually the the next in the suspense-type films Hammer would do. And Sangster doesn't have anything nice to say about that film. And we'll talk about that here at the end, or, you know, when we're done here. But, yeah, he uh, did not like Hysteria at all. She was also in a movie called Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which is from Amicus. But, man, I love that movie. Uh, anthology type movie or portmanteau type movie with Peter Cushing playing Dr. Terror. So, yeah, she, um, so Janet comes bounding into the house. She meets up with, um, Mrs. Gibbs and she also is asking where Henry Baxter is. And of course he's in, out in London in business and he's, he's not there, but hopefully he'll be there later. But, uh, there is a new woman there. Her name is Grace, that uh, Mr. Baxter has sent to be a, as Janet is told, a friend, someone to help her through because uh, Mary from the school has been kind of filling in that role and uh, Baxter thinks it's a good idea to have somebody here so Mary can go back to the school. So we meet uh, Janet, uh, excuse me, we meet Grace, Janet meets Grace later on. Weird. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and she buys, it's like no question, like, oh, okay, that's just odd. We find out that uh, Janet has an aversion to people in the medical industry, doctors, nurses, everything. She doesn't trust them. She doesn't want to be around them um, because she won't go to the doctor early on in the school. She just doesn't like them. Well, after dinner that night, uh, after Janet goes to bed uh, and offers to take Grace horseback riding the next day and she goes off to bed, Grace and Mary, the teacher, are having dinner and Grace reveals that she is a nurse, but she's not supposed to tell Janet that because, you know, of course, Janet wouldn't trust a nurse. But she's there at Mr. Maddox's request to, to help uh, Janet because of Janet's troubles with nightmares. After dinner and everybody's gone to bed, Mary is awakened with some kind of strange noises in the um corridor so she goes out to investigate where she finds janet kind of roaming in this sort of dreamlike state she's in 
kind of craziness. She tries to tell her that she found this woman in a white nightgown becking becking her to come and follow her through the corridors, but she can't find her. Mary just says that she was just being a sleepwalker. There was nobody here and that she should go back to bed. It was just a, you know, hallucination, nightmare, dream that she was having. There was there was no woman actually there. So everybody goes back to sleep. Now, have we seen the woman at this point? No, we've Do we not. Get to, we've not actually seen her face because she's got a very distinct face. Yeah, we, we don't see her at this point because uh, Mary meets Janet in the hallway after she's been searching for her. Okay. So the, the next day, Mary leaves, goes back to the school. But then uh, Janet that night has another vision of this woman. And this is where we first get to meet her or get to see okay. her. And she has this very long scar on her cheek very pronounced. I mean, it's, it's somebody that if you saw her once, you probably not forget how she looks. Janet has no idea who this is. She's never seen her before. So she's not knowing what's going on. She's also being telling, you know, this woman is telling her to follow her through the house. You know, at first you think you were thinking that it might be her mom because of the first dream that she had at the beginning of the movie. But yeah. Her, it's a, it's a bit of misdirection. Yeah. Yeah. But her mom is still locked up in the um, insane asylum. But this time, the the woman leads Janet to her parents' old bedroom. When Janet catches up with her, she's now laying on the bed where her her dad had. Uh, we'll find out later. Her dad had died. I guess I skipped over that part, didn't I? Because Mary's the one that discovers that. The Mary, the teacher. Right. Yeah. Before Mary. Mom, yeah, mom's in the asylum because mom and dad had a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mary, right before Mary leaves, she's talking to Mrs. Gibbs, and Mrs. Gibbs tells the story. You know, excuse me, Mrs. Gibbs is surprised that Mary doesn't know the full story. So she tells her the story of when, on Janet's eleventh birthday, her mom was not feeling too well. So they they do this really cool transition, and it's it, it it's one shot because the lighting changes, which I thought was one of, uh, one of the most interesting shots in the film. Uh, of the living room. And then the door comes open and this little girl comes in, you know, it's Janet and she's got a handful of flowers and Mrs. Gibbs is following her. And Janet says, I'm going to go give these to mom. And Janet says, well, no, you got to take off your jacket first. No, no time. And she run, bounds up the stairs, goes into her parents' bedroom and her father's laying on the bed with a knife sticking out of her chest. There's <laughs> Janet's birthday cake right next to the bed and her mom standing over her, her dad with this, giggling, creepy, she's kind of playing with her hair look on her face that's really creepy. And, of course, Janet just goes into hysterics. Mrs. Gibbs runs up the stairs and and pulls Janet out of the room. It's like something out of a nightmare. Uh, Yes. And so, you know, Mary is (laughs) now understanding why Janet has all of these issues with nightmares because she has experienced this traumatic um, scene in her life. Well, back to the the first night after Mary leaves in the hotel in the in the house, this woman with the scar on her face draws Janet back to her parents' bedroom. When Janet goes into the bedroom, she sees this woman laying on the bed where her dad was laying with a knife sticking out of her chest. And Janet loses it again and, and screams. Go ahead. Did the well? Did the knife? What did you think of the knife? I thought the knife was pretty cool. It's pretty fucking huge. Huge handle. It was not just like you know we went down to the kitchen and got ourselves a butcher knife. It's a pretty intense looking knife. It's a cake knife, but it's huge. Yeah, it's like a weapon. Yeah, literally. I don't know what kind of cakes they make over there in the UK, but (laughs) that's a cake knife. It definitely had a good look to it. Well, the the handle was about as long as the blade was. Yeah. I'm not sure who did the special effects in this. I know Roy Ashton did the makeup and well, okay. Yeah. Les Bowie did the special effects. So yeah, it, (laughs) the knife sticking out of the chest. That was a heck of a hand. It was huge. It looked good. It definitely stood out of his chest. No, it actually stood out. (laughs) Well, she, she screams and Mrs. Gibbs takes her back to her room. They call the doctor in town. The doctor of course makes a house call, gives her a sedative, which one thing I found in hammer films or actually a lot of films of this, this time is, you know, I think doctors, whenever they made house calls, they carried extra sedatives because they seem to always have sedatives with them. Sedatives and death certificates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they give uh, Janet a sedative to help her sleep. He also gives Grace some more pills to help her relax 
says to give her one at seven o'clock in the morning and also to get Mr. Baxter up here, the guardian, because he wants to talk to her. Excuse me. He wants to talk to him first thing in the morning. And the next thing we see, we see in the morning, uh, Mr. Baxter's back. He's talking with the doctor. The doctor immediately wants to send her for some psychiatric evaluations. Mr. Baxter talks the doctor out of that because he says that Janet doesn't trust doctors like that. It would probably be worse for her condition if she was around that type of doctor and that he should she should stay here and and we'll take care of her. You know, we've got Grace here as a nurse. She can take care of her. The doctor asks Grace, did you give her the the sedatives? And uh, she says, yes, at seven o'clock, like I was supposed to. So she's still asleep. The doctor's not happy with that situation, keeping her there, but he'll, you know, he's out of options because he can't force her to go to, to, to meet a psychiatric uh, doctor. So he leaves. The next night, uh, Janet has another nightmare. She's woken up. Whoa! <laughs> um, <laughs> what did you guys think of Janet's doll that she was always with? I was... Uh, that was the creepiest howdy-doody I've ever seen. She's always carrying this doll around. Well, she... The, the same woman she sees that night, so she's carrying the doll around. She's drugged back into her own room after wandering around the house a little bit, and she finds... At this time, I'm not sure, is is it the woman again on the bed, or is it somebody else with the knife sticking out of the chest? Is I think it it's lo- the same woman again. Okay. I couldn't quite tell, but it looked like the same woman. The chauffeur and Mrs. Gibbs then hear her screaming. She doesn't want to be back in her own room this time, so Grace, who shows up, says, well, put her in my room. So she goes to sleep in there. At this point is when Janet says, you know, I don't even know who this woman is. I don't know what she wants with me. This woman is scaring me. I'm I'm scared of her. I don't want to see her anymore. Oh, I, I did forget a very important scene. The morning that Mr. Baxter came back, Mm-hmm. After the doctor leaves, Mr. Baxter wants to see Janet. So Janet he goes up to Janet's bedroom. Janet is thrilled to see Mr. Baxter, and Mr. Baxter goes over to kiss her on the forehead, and she moves to give him a very passionate kiss on the lips. Yeah, that was um, that was a little creepy. Yeah, that's when I got confused, because I thought maybe there was something brewing between her and Baxter. <laughs> well, and it kind of throws into question, now, how old is this girl supposed to be? Yeah. What? Because, uh, yeah. It, they do say when she sees her mom die, she, it was her 11th birthday, and that was six years ago. So she's about 17 because she has a birthday in this film. Right. <laughs> so she's sixteen, late 16, early 17. I sure. Think, I think she was infatuated with Mr. Baxter, and Mr. Baxter was using that. Oh, sure. Yeah. It was weird that it's the way he sat on the side of her bed and kissed her and whatnot. So he was obviously leading her on then because I thought there was going to be something come up that way. And it would be pretty easy to see as some kind of executor of the state working his ways into getting his finger into the the estate's funds. Oh, okay. Wow. So the – the woman, she has she has the nightmare again. She ends up, you know, after being led around by this woman again, back in her room. She's got a little transistor radio that she also carries with her quite a bit, and she just hauls off and throws it into her mirror, breaking it into lots of pieces. She grabs uh, a piece of it, and I thought she was going to use it as a weapon against this woman that's been tormenting her. No, but she turns and starts to slash her wrist with it. So Grace and uh, Mrs. Gibbs catch her in time. Um, They put a tourniquet on her. The doctor is called again. Her wrist is all wrapped up. Of course, Mr. Baxter is recalled from London. This time he sounds like he's going to agree with the doctor to give her some psychiatric help. And she brings, excuse me, he brings a doctor that we never really introduced to. He's just kind of in the room. And Janet is led into the room. There's a woman in the back of the room that's staring out the window. You just see her from behind. Janet sees her. As Janet's being led in the room, a cake is wheeled in. Birthday cake, because it is Janet's uh, birthday now. Well, this woman turns around, and it's the woman that's been tormenting Janet with the, the big scar on her cheek. And Mr. Baxter says, oh, uh, Janet, I don't think you've met my wife. So the the woman comes walking up to introduce herself to Janet. Janet freaks out, backs up into the cake table, and there's that knife that we've seen several times there to cut the cake. She grabs the knife, wields it, and kills 
Mr. Baxter's wife. Stabs her multiple times, which, you know, for a movie from 1964, I was surprised how many times she stabbed her. Yeah. Yeah. They made that ad to look, that knife, obviously, to look like the same one that her mom used on her dad, right? Am I correct in assuming it, that? It sure looked like the same knife to me. Yeah. Because I had to wonder why they left that in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I hope they cleaned it real well before they cut the cake. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at this point, the the police show up. You see them, the coroner pulling, you know, taking out Mrs. Baxter, putting her in the back of a truck. And then you see Janet strapped into another uh, gurney being put into an ambulance with that creepy doll draped across her chest. She's still freaking out, going crazy. And it's like, what did she want with me? What was going on? She's put in the back of the truck. The music swells a little bit, and I'm thinking, the movie's over. Yeah. But then it's only like 35, 40 minutes in. Yeah. And the movie kind of, it's like, changes gears at this point. Because the next thing you see, Mr. Baxter and Grace have gotten married. Yeah, that was so... Well, before that, you see, as Janet is wheeled away, she's looking up and she sees the the wife looking out the window again in the white gown and she turns away from the window sets down and pulls off a mask and it's grace and the mask gets put in the fire and then the next thing you see is grace and mr baxter getting married they moved fast and when we get to big and i'm I'm sure we're gonna get there but when we get the big reveal at the end when we realize who's been really trying to i don't know do right by janet is it any wonder i mean <laughs> baxter and grace helping got married pretty darn quick after they committed yeah janet so i mean that's here if they didn't know something was kind of going on before this is a big red flag that something else happened right well i have a feeling <laughs> that the, the people that are ultimate responsible for for go, what goes on in the second half they're making their plans right now because they're yeah. they see what's happened they see that mr baxter is now kind of you know he's got grace now who he put in place to help janet quote unquote they're they're at their this honeymoon, and they eventually come back to the the house, and he kind of assumes now that it his it's his house because he I think he was the lawyer for the parents at one point, yeah. and and yeah. he's just kind of taken over the house. Take, and the staff is still there because he moves back in there with Grace eventually. But you know, back on the honeymoon, you know, they're all lovey dovey in the bed, and all of a sudden, you know, Mister Baxter, after being you know hasn't un- he says I haven't unpacked in two days or something. I'm going for a drink and I get dressed. I expect you downstairs and for a drink. Well, as soon as he leaves the room, the phone rings. Grace, who's still in the bed, reaches over, answers the phone. And it's like, no, he's not here right now. Can I take a message? And then that was the entire phone call because the other end hung up. So she gets dressed and goes downstairs to the bar. And downstairs, Mr. Baxter is complaining that he's not getting enough whiskey because <laughs> the, uh, the, the tea butler is there, the... The barman isn't there yet, and he doesn't uh, pour enough whiskey for Mr. Baxter. So Grace says, well, who was on the phone? You know, I told him that you'd be down at the bar. And he's like, no one called down here for me. I I don't know who, what you're talking about. Well, the barman comes running in at this point and acts like he's known Mr. Baxter all his life. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. If I knew it was one of my normal customers, I would have come in early. I'll make your drink right. I'll get the right stuff for you. Uh, you know, you'll have... Yeah. a double whiskey and your girl here will have you know, immediately says one drink and the the woman like he looks up and realizes it's not the woman he thought it was and he's like oh uh, i'm sorry uh, what will the what will the lady have and she orders a whiskey as well grace is thinking well obviously mr baxter's been here with another woman before and mr baxter's like i've never been here before this is my first time ever i don't know this guy I don't know what other woman he's referring to. Grace is starting to get suspicious that Mr. Baxter's got another woman on the side. So they get into a heated argument, and he finally convinces her, no, there's nothing going on. So she asks, and a little bit later, she asks for some cigarettes, and he's in the bathroom shaving, and he's like, oh, they're in my pocket. And so he starts to go through his jacket and finds a pack of menthol cigarettes, which neither of them smoke. Mentholated. Mentholated, that's it. That's, That's right. Mentally. <laughs> Grace then immediately assumes it's the other woman's cigarettes. So she gets dressed and goes downtown or downstairs to talk to the barman. And the barman finally tells us, uh, tells her that, oh, yes, he was here a couple of weeks ago with another woman. You know, how long have you been married? And she says, oh, 
four days, and oh, oh, this all happened before you got married, so it's okay. So the two, yeah, like three day, three <laughs> days or whatever before she got married, so it was all good. He was just blowing off some steam. That's right, sowing his last oats, you know, right, you know, one last shot before you get married. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've all been there, right, fellas? Wait, I'm the only one. <laughs> um. Well, yours is the only wife of ours that listens to this show. So uh, you say whatever you, whatever you want, Scott. But uh. <laughs> so she goes back upstairs, and they get into another heated argument. She's convinced now that there's another woman, and at this point, he finally decides that you know they're going to leave the hotel and go back home. And she's, oh, we're going back to the flat. No, I sold the flat in town. We're going back to the to the manor. And she's like, what? We're going back there? And where this all happened before? It's like everybody, all the servants are still there. They're going to know what's going on. It's like, well, I've been in place trying to get this uh, house all this whole time, and now I'm not going to let anybody take away what I've earned. And so they end up going back to the to the house where they continue to argue about this other woman. And there's, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Gibbs is, you know, serving them while they're arguing and, She's seeing all this, and you know, she keeps thinking that there's another woman that Mr. Baxter is seeing. Mr. Baxter continues to deny it. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, they go to bed, and in the middle of the night, Grace starts to hear something going on in the house, other, other noises. So she gets up to investigate, and she finds Janet's doll in the hallway. So she's now convinced that Janet has come back, even to the point where she calls the asylum where Janet has been incarcerated and the voice on the phone tells her that Janet escaped three days ago. We don't know where she is and she's considered dangerous. So Grace starts to, you know, be really concerned that Janet has come back to the house. She knows what happened and she's after her to the point where she doesn't want to have anything to do with her husband anymore, locks herself into the bedroom at night. The middle of the night, she's got the the doll on the nightstand. The door's locked. Somebody tries to get in. They can't get in because it's locked. You see a piece of paper slide under the door, and then somebody through the keyhole pushes the key out. It falls on the paper. Paper's pulled back. They're, they unlock the door. You see a woman's feet in a white nightgown. It's shot low. Comes in, goes over to the nightstand, walks back, and now you see it's carrying the doll by the feet with the head hanging down by her her feet, walk out of the room. Grace wakes up the next morning, looks over at the nightstand, and instead of seeing the doll that she expected to see there, the knife is there, pointed right at her. <laughs> why is why is that so funny? I, I don't know. <laughs> now at this point in the film, this is where you know up to this point I'm kind of enjoying the film. I you know it's not as bad as as I thought it was going to be, but then Grace, the actress, goes into over actor mode and starts to really over pronounce words that really yeah. grated on me. I could I agree with you because I I mean I was at no point did I actually like love this movie but I was pretty enjoying it for the most part up to this point but yeah Grace made a big turn all of a sudden right here and all of a sudden she became really wordy and really over dramatic yeah that's I, true she did really kind of push it in terms of her performance do we want do we want to spoil the ending I don't know what's the uh, statute of limitations on spoiling a movie from 1964. Uh, you know, we already talked a little bit about it, and I think, yeah, I mean, we we spoil movies all the time here. Okay. That's what we do. All right. We'll just call this a spoiler alert right here. Yes. So in case you're wanting to uh, watch it, stay pure. Come back after you're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we said, Grace now, she goes over the top with her, her acting. She, she sort of is suspicious of everybody and also scared to the nth degree. Despite her repeatedly screaming that she's not. Yes. She screams most of the rest of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> she again sees a woman in a white gown wandering away. She thinks it's Janet. She follows her around. She's actually trying to go on, you know, to, to catch her. She sends the um, Mrs. Gibbs and this other maid that we hadn't seen the entire movie. All of a sudden, just this blonde maid showed up. You know, I'm thinking, oh, 
she's going to have something to do with it. No, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> but she sends the staff to search the house over and over again from top to bottom. They can't find anybody else in the house. They don't, she doesn't tell them who they're looking for. Just there's somebody in the house. She's here. Find her. Well, her husband gets home that night and they argue again because she, uh, Grace is saying, Janet's here. Janet's here. And he's like, no, she's not. Now I had the, I had the staff look for everywhere. And well, he goes and he apologizes to Mrs. Gibbs on her behalf. And he then walks away from Grace and goes to another part of the house where Grace ends up finding him leaving this room, closing it behind him. After you hear hear him apologizing for Grace's actions again, Grace says, she's in there. I know she's in there. It's like, who are you talking to? And he's like, I was talking to John. I was apologizing for your actions earlier today. No, no, Janet's in there. I know she's in there. The whole time, you know, the, the, the last 20 minutes of the film, she's carrying the knife around as well. The whole time, right? She finally corners her husband in the in her in the bedroom. He's in there reading the newspaper, and this is the 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 scene where I liked her the least because she was just really pouring it on over over the top, saying, "You know, like you you're you're behind all this. You've you've brought Janet here because I know she's or she knows what's happened, and she's going to kill me because I I drove her crazy, and it's all your pl- plan to." To get me out of the way so you can get all the money. Well, I'm not going to let her have that satisfaction. I'm, I'm, I, and then she pulls a knife, points it at him, stabs him in the shoulder. I'm not going, you know, the best offense is, or the best defense is a good offense. I'm going to attack you before she does. And the best thing is she's going to get blamed with it. Well, he tries to make a move on her and she stabs him right in the gut and then into the chest, kills, kills him. She, Wipes her hands, runs downstairs to to grab the phone to call the police to say that that Janet's here and her husband's dead. Well, at this point, John comes out of the shadows and Mrs. Gibbs comes out of the shadows and saying that, you know, Janet's not here. She's perfectly fine. And then the teacher, Mary, shows up and right after... Grace says, well, I saw her wandering around the halls. And Mary says, no, you saw me. I was kind of worried. Why did she come back at the end of the film? But yeah, it seemed kind of odd. John calls the insane asylum where Janet is. And they say that she's doing well in her, in her treatments and that we're hoping for a full recovery. And Grace is screaming, but, but I called there and they said that she was loose. And he's like, John's like, I was the one on the other end of the line. I told you that. <laughs> I tapped your phone. <laughs> I dun, tapped dun, dun, dun. And of course, at this point, I think Grace loses the last little threads of sanity that she had. And she yeah. goes over to the staircase and just starts screaming hysterically. As over the top as Grace was at this point in the movie, I loved her cackle there at the end. Yes. as She broke loose. <laughs> I Yeah, I would agree that that cackle was was pretty pretty cool pretty terrifying and the fact that it kept going and going and going too yes so the the wait staff with mary's help they were looking out for janet's best interest after all and they they got rid of the the, the husband and um grace who framed janet and drove her crazy and that was pretty much the end of the film yeah uh, you know i question a lot of the relationships here i thought it was weird that the uh teacher came home with her yeah I mean, that just seemed like a a stretch. Especially since she was basically being expelled, wasn't she? Because of her nightmares and stuff? Well, Pretty she, what, much. Yeah. And she was refusing to see a doctor. I mean, that was the thing. You know, you're not going to get better. Well, you got to go home. Well, I think the school felt sorry for her. I think Mary also liked her. And they wanted to make sure she got home, home okay because they knew she was having troubles. And I, I have a feeling that even though they said that the school sent Mary home. I think Mary probably volunteered for it. That was my feeling. Cause I think Mary cared for Janet and that shows at the end of the film, because the wait staff obviously had to have contacted Mary because they needed help. They needed another person. And she was willing to come back down to the, to the manor to help in this complicated plot to to get rid of the the two people that drove janet crazy yeah yeah i don't know i by no means that i i actively dislike this movie but i did find that a lot of it just kind of happened 
you know, I didn't. There yeah. were some mysteries and things like that, you know, some twists, some turns. But I think the Hammer story, the authorized history of Hammer films by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes says it best that it's not really a how done it, it's more of a why done it type of movie. Yeah. Well, for me, if the film would have ended right after Janet kills the, the wife and is taken away, I think it would have been a very good short film. I like, I really liked the film up until that point. If it would have ended there, it would have been one, it wouldn't have made my top five, but you know, I would have considered it for a top ten. I was enjoying it that much. It's the second half of the film that really, and it's, I can pin it on Grace's performance that I, I did not like. I didn't. I, Grace was definitely over the top, but she didn't really do anything to detract from the movie for me. I liked this movie overall, and I was able to keep up with it, and I enjoyed some of the stuff that was going on. But like Derek said, it just kind of existed. There was nothing new and spectacular here that really blew me over. But at the same time, as a movie, I could sit and watch and enjoy, and kept me engaged to the end. Now, th- my biggest problem is I think if they would have put a time jump between the time they got. If they would have put a time jump, <laughs> if they would have put a time jump in between when they got Janet committed and Baxter and Grace getting married, and it could have been as simple, you know, just like a placard or something like that that says six three months. years later, yeah. So, yeah, six months or a year later or something like that. Then in the second half would have been more acceptable and more believable because now all of a sudden we're a week and a half later, Grace and. Baxter are married, and then they're only been married for four days, and she's going apeshit crazy, blaming him for everything and whatnot. Which I can understand her uh, not trusting him because of what they just done, but at the same time, it just shows that she was already unstable, anyways. And maybe that's part of the point. I don't know. But if they would have had like a year gap in there, it would have been more believable because, like you guys said, when they. All of a sudden, Baxter's the still the executor of the estate, and he declares, "We're going to go live back in this mansion because I'm the executor. Who else is going to live there? I can do whatever I want." And they just spent in a period of basically two weeks of framing the do- getting the daughter home from school, framing her, getting her to murder his wife, going into the sanitarium, until now all of a sudden he's getting married and they're going to move back in there. How is that not suspicious to anybody? Which, you know, we finally find out that it's not suspicious, or I mean, I'm sorry, we do eventually find out that it is suspicious to everybody, but they could have wiped that out and made it more of a a gut punch at the end when everybody figured them out if they came back a year later, I think. What I didn't understand at that point is if Mr. Baxter obviously had to be a very intelligent man. He was a lawyer. He planned this whole thing out. Wouldn't the first thing you would do is clean house of the and bring in a whole new staff? If you're going to move in there with the person that you were seen there with, framing the the young girl, exactly. <laughs> Especially since you have the power to do that. Yeah, he could yeah. have fired every single one of them and hired an entire new staff. I agree. I agree with both of you. I want Casey's time jump. I want that six months later. And it didn't, you know, it could have been done in the dialogue. It could have been handled pretty easily, I think, to give us some more time passing. And yeah, uh, hiring new staff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but it, you, you wouldn't have had the second half of the movie because the new staff wouldn't have known what happened and wouldn't have framed her, but... That's true. Done it still, if you had a new staff and still had the old staff around because they would have known the grounds, they could have snuck back in. They could have been working their magic through the townspeople and stuff like that, too. That's that's a good point. Making phone calls and everything. True. Now, he would have had to have taken them out literally. <laughs> At the same time, though, even despite his faults there of where he missed something obvious like that, I kind of like the character of Baxter because he was an outright bastard. There was no redeeming qualities to him, so it was kind of nice just to see him, and especially in a Hammer context where everybody's kind of a gothic evil or something like that. He was just a bastard. He was just in it for the money. Yeah. There really I, I, wasn't anything redeeming about him at all. You're right. I don't think he really liked Grace. No, I don't think he did either. I think he just used Grace because she – was I don't even know if she was a real nurse or not, but he was somebody that he could plant in there to help drive the girl crazy. And the only reason he married her, he thought he could keep her under control. Yep, that's exactly it. And a lot of times when you get in outside of the horror Hammer horror movies, and we've seen it with some of the other like noir films and stuff like that, your bad guys are kind of, they're a little bit bad. They got a little bit of 
you know, meanness to them, but overall they're fairly flat and they're fairly uh, inconspicuous or that's not even the right word. They're fairly uh, harmless for the most part, but this guy is just downright bad and he's really calculating. He is really over the top and it, he felt really villainous in a, in a non-horror hammer flick, which I thought was nice. Yeah, that's true. You didn't have the uh, any of the gothic trappings to go along with this guy who's just a, a bastard from the very beginning. So it is a little refreshing, I suppose. But then again, it did seem like... Um you know, we've seen this all before with somebody taking over, you know, you know, driving other people crazy. So, again, it was nothing new. Had we seen that before in the context of the time this was made or in the context of now? Well, Paranoia came out before this. Okay. I still think this you know, had more in common with uh, team or uh, taste or scream of fear. You know, having one person driving, you know, other people crazy. It just it felt more in kin with that film than it did with Paranoiac to me. Maybe it was because of the strong women characters of the film. I could see that. And this does seem to be a theme in a lot of the Hammer suspense thrillers. I mean, one of my favorites, Fear in the Night, it's my number five, has that same element going with it as well. The let's make somebody think they're crazy kind of thing going on. So it does seem to be a theme in a lot of these suspense films. And Fear in the Night, I believe, was a Sangster production. So maybe that's something that just he brings <laughs> to the table. <laughs> Maybe he likes to drive people crazy. Maybe he does. So he really liked working on Nightmare with Freddie Francis. He liked the cast. He liked the crew. He liked working with Freddie Francis. He did not like working, and maybe we'll talk about this if we ever talk about the movie Hysteria, but Hysteria was the next one that he did, and he compares the two in his autobiography, Do You Want It Good or Tuesday? And he loved working on Nightmare. He said the set was great. Everybody was cool. The director didn't try to push things too far. If Freddie Francis said, hey, I want to do this, and they said, no, you can't. We can't afford it. He said, oh, okay, we'll do it some other way. Whereas if he worked on Hysteria, the director was always pushing, always trying to push the budget. He also said he hated the cast from Hysteria that the the male lead, who was an American, brought over, treated everybody else very poorly, that sort of thing. But he seems to imply that Nightmare was just a – was not a nightmare while shooting, that everybody had fun. I don't see that sense of fun in a lot of the movie, but I don't know. Maybe you needed to have not nearly as much fun to kind of dial down the – theatrics a little bit, especially towards the end of the movie with Grace. She just goes and goes and goes. Yeah, like I said earlier, if this movie was just the first half and, and, and the credits rolled after they put, uh, you know, maybe you could still scroll up and see the wife in the window and find out that it was Grace and then you could just assume that, you know, Grace was behind the whole thing and the credits rolled. I'd have been happy at that point. You know, the second half of the film was over the top for me. Was it wasn't that I hated it. It's just I didn't enjoy it as much as the first half. Right. I didn't think the first half was better. You I did? I agree with you there. You I did. did. The first, oh, did. The first okay. half was better, yeah. Well, does this make the top five for anybody? No. Nope. I didn't think so. <laughs> but as as a wise man said earlier, it was better than Four-Sided Triangle. You know, we got some comments about Four-Sided Triangle over on our Facebook page. Here's a segue. We have a Facebook page like that. Hey, that's like what. That's why you're yeah. the professional podcast. Yeah, there's something like that. <laughs> now, we did get some comments going on about our four-sided triangle uh, coverage, uh, which was last month's episode. So, yeah, you can find us on Facebook. We have both a page and a group. Go to 1951 down. No, don't go there. Well, I mean, do go there. But then also go to Facebook. <laughs> are, are we going <laughs> to talk about the comments or just say that there was some? There are some comments. Go read them for yourself. <laughs> okay. I will. You like you like yeah. that? Now, we had some people comment on Four-Sided Triangle, and Mark Leeper, one of our listeners, said that there's a bit of Four-Sided Triangle in Quatermass in the Pit. So we're supposed to keep an eye out for that. Yep, I'm, do you, I'm looking for that. Do you know what he's that. talking about? Or? When I saw um, Quatermass in the Pit for the first time, I had not seen Four-Sided Triangle, so I wouldn't have recognized um, this piece of film being used in both films. But now I'm looking forward to when we watch Quatermass in the Pit for the November episode to see um, the scene from Four-Sided Triangle show up. Sounds good. We'll have to check it out. So that's our Facebook group. So look up 1951 Down Place on Facebook. Join the group. We also have a page that if you'd like, well, what do we do with that page over there? We typically announce new episodes, that sort of thing. So... The more likes we can get on Facebook, the better. I don't know how the Facebook metrics work, but we do have both the group and a page. We also have a Twitter account. 
Twitter.com slash 1951downplace. And then we have our uh, website, which is at uh, 1951downplace.com, which also has links to our, if you want to send us feedback, you can send it to podcast at 1951downplace.com. Or you can call us at area code 765-203-1951. Now that is a Google Voice Line number, which will cut you off at three minutes. So if you have more than three minutes of content that you want to send us, you can always record your own MP3 and send it to the podcast at 1951downplace.com email address or just write us an email. Next, also at 1951downplace is a link to our episode list. Next month is our, was it an October episode? Uh, September. September. Oh, September. Wow. September I comes after week. August, just so I, you know, Derek. Well, it, so does October, technically, wise ass. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> September. Man about the house. Wow, we are going way off the beaten path with that one. We're going to do our first Hammer comedy. I hope it doesn't hurt. You know, I don't have any experience with the Hammer comedies outside of having a soundtrack album of a number of their comedy scores kind of put together. But Man About the House came out in the 70s, didn't it? Late 60s? That's a good question. Thanks. (laughs) Been working on that one for a while. (laughs) Well, the TV series was 1973 to 1976, which was a British television show. But the movie... 1974. 1974. Yep, I just popped up on my screen, too. This movie has a connection to the American sitcom Three's Company. So, yeah, this will be a good one. This is one that Scott picked. Well, Scott picks them all, really, technically. He's the one that put together our list. But, uh, yeah, Man About the House. We'll see how that goes. So, yeah, if anybody out there has a Hammer film that you would like us to cover... I'm the one that you got to talk to. So <laughs> if you send it to podcast at 1951downplace.com and have a suggestion, we'll consider it. We'll consider it. <laughs> and if you send your suggestion to Scott with cookies, you have a better chance for said suggestion to be taken. And for 50 pounds, we'll talk about any film. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a line from Nightmare. <laughs> Not that we would actually accept 50 pounds. I take, take 50 pounds. We have a tip yeah. star, speaking of which... <laughs> Yes, that uh, man, man about the house is September, and then uh, we talked about Oliver Reed earlier making every film better. We're going to see Mr. Oliver Reed in October with Curse of the Werewolf. November Scott's birthday month with Quatermass in the pit. Pit <laughs> in the pit. <laughs> what is that? Quatermass. Quatermass. Oh man, you know what, Scott? Go ahead. Quatermass in the pick. His guitar pick. He's actually going to put on a rock and roll concert for us. <laughs> Uh, and then I'll pick something for December. Anything but the revenge of she. Vengeance of she. Whatever. Right. Show some respect. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you pick that, my next birthday month is going to be, we're going to do four-sided triangle again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm just warning you. <laughs> so that'll be December is Derek's pick. Um, January, we're going to be talking about another film noir. Uh, the Flanagan Boy, which was released in the U.S. as Bad Blonde. And then uh, next February, we're back to Casey's birthday pick. Yeah, I have no idea what I'm going to pick yet. I was getting excited thinking I was going to pick Die, Die, My Darling, because I was thinking that's going to be great. And then I realized we're already cut it on the schedule. Yeah, we could change it. Yeah, we could. We could change <laughs> it. Ah, there's plenty of others out there for me to pick from. We'll figure something out. Yes, that's Stephanie Powers. I don't know if I want to wait. You know, just saying. That's exactly why I wanted to pick it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our schedule is all the way out to April of next year. Um, the March, we have the Pirates of Blood River, and April's is Die, Die, My Darling, which was just mentioned. But again, uh, anything uh, after uh, you know, September on is still subject to change if something big comes up and then i i will be sitting down here pretty soon to expand the schedule so now's the time if you have a, a recommendation to let us know <laughs> and that includes uh derek and casey if there's something it, we haven't done one of the dracula or frankenstein films in a while no and i was also thinking we haven't done any of the new hammer films yeah i was thinking about that too woman in black would be a fun discussion that's kind of a, a little sneak preview of what might be showing up in the schedule soon well anything else before we sign off and let our listeners go Joni loves Chachi is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I did see uh, Scott's no, uh, post the other day 
I think it was on Facebook where he was watching something on VTV or whatever, and did have they were actually airing an episode of Joni Loves Chachi. Well, actually, I was watching Happy Days, and Joni Loves Chachi was on there, and I lamented that MeTV doesn't show Joni Loves Chachi. Ah, okay. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. But I did get to see Joni and Chachi, and they were planning their future together as rock stars. <laughs> yeah, I just I just got me TV, so that's that's new to me. So. Yeah, me TV is pretty fun for if you're in the in the central Indiana area. It's like a local station, but they play all reruns of old classic shows. So there's lots of Rockford Files, Happy Days, stuff like that. And Saturday night, Sven Gulli. Yep. And uh, the deal that they have is that they can show the Universal package, which means occasionally a Hammer film will turn up because Universal had the distribution rights for a lot of them. So Brides of Dracula turns up. A few other Hammer, or me, a few other Hammer films will turn up as well. So, and I don't think it's it, uh, it's done on a local station here in Indiana, but I think MeTV is a uh, all over the country because I know Derek has it out in Oregon. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Loves me some MeTV. Yeah, I was I was digging on Adam Twelve yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, I'm going to go turn on MeTV right now and see what's on. So I'm out of here, gentlemen. All right. Da-da-da-da-da-da.